Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to LawPod. Today we are continuing with our Meet the PhD Researcher series where I sit down this time remotely Hi, coronavirus, um, with Ian Nash. So we're just going to have a little bit of a chat about Ian's journey into his PhD, what he's been researching, and his particular experiences of being a part-time distance learner. So we'll have a little bit of a chat about how that experience differs maybe from doing it full-time and, you know, on a campus, um, which is particularly relevant given our current situation, the potential increase in distance-type learning in the future. So uh, welcome, Ian. Good to talk to you, Rachel. Yeah, thank you for being here or, you know, being wherever you are in the world. <laughs> um, so just to uh, kick off then, if maybe you can just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey to deciding to do a PhD at Queen's. Sure, no problem at all. I'd have thought that uh, being in a, in like my own kitchen on a sunny day would make this a more relaxing uh, process, but I can tell you it isn't. <laughs> um, yes, so I'm um, so I actually started my uh, PhD just over twelve months ago, um, and as you mentioned earlier, it's uh, part time and distance, so I spend very little time. Um, actually like up in Belfast and on on campus. Um, The area of my research or the focus of my research is really looking at how we legislate to uh, make software safer. And I particularly look at what what are called internet of things. Um, So this is a device, it has a, a CPU, which is essentially a brain and it has an internet connection. And uh, what I'm really looking at is to see how uh, consumer protection, um, you know, rules are able to be applied into this, and how like, we're able to uh, make these like, devices safer. Is that all making sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess we can get into that into the topic a little bit more because there's some interesting strands to unpick there. Uh, in a second but first what was it that motivated you to do a PhD in the first place? Sure so I'm uh, a a bit of a late starter when it comes to the PhD. Um, I did a uh, kind of law degree or a a, a master's in law in Queen's about 10 years ago and since then I actually worked for a few companies who were selling software which was um, uh, so like protection for smart cities, uh, like protection for corporate networks, and I worked at companies in Israel, worked at companies in the USA and in the UK. And it was through that experience where I'm helping them you know, market their uh, products and finding new clients that I really got to understand the threats and the nature of the threats which are out there. Um, and also to get a kind of a better sense, because if you look at, you know, there's been films and books of late where you see hackers in TV and it's very exotic and it's very fast uh, and they're very, very powerful. Whereas this gave uh, a more accurate uh, re- 
reflection of um, what exactly the problems were. And I found it interesting. And when I looked into it in a bit more detail, I found there seemed to be a gap in the academic literature uh, there. Obviously, people will discuss hacks and botnets, but not really from a legal perspective. Um, I found it interesting, um, started doing a bit of research into it, and then spoke with a kind of number of colleges and got on very well with my supervisor. Um, and uh, yeah, and then knocked on the door of Queens and said, if if like, you guys are interested, I'm interested in this. and here we are. Lovely. So it's very much a PhD that's been motivate, motivated by an interest in the topic itself. So I guess you didn't always envision yourself as an academic necessarily. What was it that kind of made you want to explore this from an academic perspective other than identifying this gap? Yeah, it's, it's, um, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, um, my, undergraduate and my first master's were actually in a different subject it was in economics um so uh, and then i went off into the real world uh, worked in banking and then you know worked in tech sales um but i've always been kind of more interested in the theory of why we do something or the theory that uh, so so like if i'm selling a product i have to understand its benefits and i have to understand um how it's going to help and you know where it like fits into the general ecosystem um and that's really the or in kind of my view that's like really um a, a good basis to have on for for actually looking at the phd because you have to have a good sense of why is this of use is this relevant and how can we improve upon this um and i think those are the kind of fundamental uh questions that'll always be going through the phd or at least i found them to be so far so i think it's a good uh actually like next fit and it's just a topic which i find fascinating i mean i can that's great i can read uh technical reports on on uh on um, uh, hacks and on products for hours and hours on end which is again <laughs> something that's kind of necessary for the phd because there is a lot to read does that make any sense yeah, and as a you know someone that would find that kind of reading incredibly difficult to understand, you know, I thank you for <laughs> taking the taking it for the team and diving into these issues. Um, so that's really nice, and that you've got this kind of marrying of the passion for the topic and then a kind of uh, intellectual question that's uh, underlying your interest. And I, I was talking to a colleague recently about academia and the motivating factors that bring us to academia and I think it's interesting how some of us as you, as you were expressing there are interested in the why do we need this and how can we make things better question and that kind of impactful type of academia and others are interested in just like how can we understand this more and it looks like your PhD is a slight kind of combination of those two things like how can we understand something more but also how can we potentially make things better so to kind of get into the project in a bit more detail then, you were talking about safety of devices, so smart devices. So I guess you mean things like the laptop that I'm on now and the phone and all those kinds of things. What is it that you mean when you talk about the safety of these devices in particular, like safety for whom? That's uh, an excellent question and it lands uh, straight into the area that I'm trying to tiptoe around on the PhD, which is, is software, a service or a good. Um, so I'm just having mentioned it, I'm going to now 
just crack on and ignore it. <laughs> um, but so a kind of laptop, actually less kind of relevant. I'm talking more, um, you've got a uh, smart kettle, smart thermostats. Um, so it's it's now the case where in a person's home, you have a lot of products which previously would have been only uh, you know plugged into the power network, now also have a Wi-Fi connection. Um, so uh, the probably the actual best the the best known example would be a smart thermostat um, of a certain brand that's sold very well. It's kind of the smart meters are a thing which are uh, quite popular as well. And the safety there is important because we now have a situation where we have a physical product which is interacting with us um, or in our house or in our property and it's connected to other products. And if there's an issue where somebody takes control of that product or there's an error in the code, the consequences, unlike a problem on a laptop where it's just data, are now actually physical. So if I have a smart thermostat and I'm able to compromise it or a smart kettle, I could potentially uh, try and bring down a power grid by turning on all the kettles at once. I could um, try and cause damage in a house by turning on all the thermostats, uh, by basically telling them it's a lot colder than it is, suddenly turning on a heating system. Um, and what this means is now the people who manufacture these products, they firstly have to have good code, which is something that they wouldn't have necessarily had to have done before. The, the, the actual code has to be good, it has to be secure, or as secure as it can be. And secondly, because the code can take over the device, they now need to have uh, physical checks and like physical uh, trips and like limits, which they, again, they wouldn't have had to before because a kettle can't turn itself on, but when you give it a Wi-Fi connection, it can. Is that making sense? Is that uh, kind of actually like bridging the gap? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that's it's really interesting. So it shifts how I understand your work slightly. Um, and that's really fascinating. I was thinking very much, as you know, I said to you, just about things that we're used to having that kind of intelligence. Mm. But what you're saying is that, you know, we are now increasingly in a world where the things around us can be programmed and interfered with, and that there's actual risks for that go much beyond data, essentially, exactly. an actual physical reality of harm potentially. Exactly, so, and and what's quite interesting or at least what I've, I've just finished writing a paper about so i think it's fascinating um is you can't sue for damages if your thermostat decides if like your thermostat um causes you uh, damage or if what's happening more often is your smart uh kettle attacks a website because it's compromised it's part of a botnet the person who's damaged by that can't sue you, they can't sue the manufacturer, and you can't sue the manufacturer. And that's kind of because of what I mentioned earlier. We have software as a service. It's you know it's 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 a case where there are, there are many blocks in taking a claim in, for example, um, consumer protection legislation or taking a a, a, a tortious action. It'll be barred. Um, and this is a problem which the academic uh, view of um, software hasn't really grappled with yet, and obviously the academic view it 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 would be in front of the courts, so they haven't really looked at it at at it either. hasn't been a problem to date. This is very new. It's only the last few years, so there hasn't been many uh, the physical damages. Um, there has been some, but not many. 
But if we think five to 10 years down the line where everything in the house will be connected and everything that you're wearing could be connected, that's where this gets both interesting and quite frightening. Yeah, I mean, obviously not to make light of what is clearly a serious and likely to get more serious issue, but I really enjoyed your image of the malignant kettle, you know, taking part <laughs> in an attack. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, so that's the problem. What kind of solutions then are you beginning to grapple with? Or is, is your project still about kind of identifying the nature of the problem itself? The advantage of coming into a PhD late um, and having a few years work experience is that I'm very sure I know the solution. (laughs) (laughs) I started this project because I knew the solution. And now as I progress further, I'm just slightly teaching myself that I don't. But yes, I mean, um, it's the case where if if, like you look back through complicated matters in court, uh, such as... um, uh, kind of medical issues such as smoking, such as contaminated blood, they're extremely technical uh, uh, problems where there's a lot of uncertainty, where it's very unclear. And uh, both the academic side of um, the actual legal systems and the practical sides, until they happened, weren't able to deal with them. But when they became a problem, it was dealt with quickly. So is or are our systems able to handle this? I think absolutely yes. Um, and one area that I'm particularly uh, focused on is in how do we regulate code? It's a, it's that is a. There are hundreds upon hundreds of, if if not thousands of papers uh, that produce every year that focus on this, but very few look at the style of regulation. And having done the corporate governance uh, masters in Queens a, a, a few a, a few kind of years ago. Um, you've got the kind of like US style, as I call it, which is it's all regulated. It's hard regulation. This is what you can do. This is what you can't. It's very difficult to do that in tech because it moves so quickly. By the time it's agreed and published, it's out of date, uh, kind of quite simply. And then, on, and, then backed, uh, and then backed up against this is the fact that, um, that you can hire very expensive lawyers to find loopholes, and they will always move faster than the regulators. On the other side of it, there's what's known as the uh, Cadbury Code Corporate Governance, which was a a British um, method of regulating public companies. And what it does is it's principles-based. So it's you can comply or explain. So this is what you should do. How you do it is up to you. If you choose not to go down this route, it's again up to you. And like what I'm trying to do is when or if, if... if I'm able to go where I want to go and it's actually uh, it becomes a thing, um, it should be the case then when anyone is contemplating writing code, they are thinking of the risks, they are thinking of best practice, and they can then make a choice whether to adhere with it, whether they think it doesn't apply to them, but it's a conscious choice. Whereas right now, when we look back at uh, data breaches, at hacks, at compromises of software, um, it's usually because it wasn't thought about, there wasn't e kind of enough rigor in the process, and it was accidental. I'm not saying that like we can stamp out um, a, a, a compromise of, of of code. Absolutely not. Like the like coronavirus, that's here to stay, but it shouldn't happen uh, due to a lack of thought. Is that making sense? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's about giving people or companies the tools that they need to make an informed choice about the way they're approaching their coding. Is that essentially the kind of idea? Yeah. So like I would say framework rather than tools. Mm, okay. Yeah, they yeah. can choose their own tools. They can make their own tools. But the framework needs to be well understood, clear and reasonably globally um, applied, which means it's what's done in the EU or US mainly. Aye. And so with that then... If that framework existed and corporations were encoders were making those choices, does that tie in then to an ability for someone to be held liable, as you were mentioning earlier? Indeed. Yeah. And actually, in kind of many cases, because of the nature of how um, of how software is compromised, a hack happens because there's an error in the code. Sometimes that error is known about. Sometimes it isn't. Um, so in in a large part of what I'm I'm trying to do is to say right where you should have known that a hacker could have uh, exploited like uh, like your code via that error then you are responsible or if somebody comes along or it's a large uh, well organized group and they got in in like a way which was unknown to you was unknown to everyone else. Yes, there's a bad outcome, but in that case, no one is liable. But the second person who falls victim to that, they are. Or rather, the actual like second uh, person who writes code using that error, they are kind of liable, and the third and the fourth. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So, I mean, it already sounds like you're quite far advanced in your thinking around the topic. How are you finding the process of doing a PhD? And what, what kind of stage are you at in your, in your journey, if you like? Yeah, it's it's um, it's probably made slightly more complicated uh, based on the fact that I don't have a undergraduate uh, kind of law degree, and the model of doing a PhD in economics is very different out of law. I mean, basically, it's you write three papers, one being your job market uh, paper, and that's what is really um, uh, that that's actually like what like you're ranked on and. And, and uh, a, a kind of assessed on the concept of writing a book um, isn't really there as much, whereas in law it obviously is. So to get into that frame of mind is proving a bit of a challenge. But like I said, I do find this topic absolutely fascinating. So in terms of being able to put in the hours and uh, you know go through what the um, what, what's in the the actual various articles what's happening from a technical perspective and what the kind of commentators are saying, that's something which I am able to do, but I do this outside of the nine to five. So coming home after work, opening up the laptop, <laughs> spending a few hours going through it, um, that can be a challenge. You, you, you do lose your weekends, put it that way. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. I mean, I think you've held something important there and I think your enthusiasm for the topic really comes through when you're talking about it. And when I am approached by people that are considering a PhD, I always kind of say, well, make sure that you pick something that you're passionate about. And it sounds like that becomes all the more important when you are trying to fit it around uh, full-time work and trying to do this in your evenings and weekends. Would you, I mean, what would you say to someone that was considering a part-time PhD you know, at, at this point in your experience, is it 
something you would recommend or like what advice would you give, I guess? Yeah. And actually, like one thing which I think a part-timer has an advantage on is I plan, like I have to like plan my work very well in terms of I block off hours. Um, I'm completely, uh, I lack any sense of, of, of like being able to actually write out on Monday what exactly I'm going to do on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I kind of drift along and, and, and bounce from paper to paper, uh, but I do um, block out the hours. And since I ration my time, I do find I probably work, if not harder, but more e kind of effectively than I would have done, say, if this was a, uh, a, a full-time exercise and I had work intruding on that. Um, I have very few hours to give to the PhD, and so therefore they are well used. And speaking to other people in uh, kind of actually like who are doing uh, part-time research as well, that's the same. So, I mean, it isn't, I mean, there are, are many extra challenges with it, but if you're enthusiastic about the project and you have the capability to you know, block off uh, a, a you know, time um, either during the week or weekends or like whenever, I don't think it's much harder. And from, and, and from, from speaking to both uh, part-time people and full-time people, I don't think I'm, I, I guess, twice the actual time that's, that's uh, given towards a full-time student. So far, I don't think I'm going to need all of that. Is that making sense? Yeah, and I was thinking as you were talking about um, my own PhD experience and how there would be these kind of purposeless weeks where I would just kind of drift and I could see the value in having this framework of you have this amount of hours, like make them count. Yeah. Um, so I can I can definitely see what you mean by that. And the curse of the full time is potentially sometimes just being allowed to drift a little bit too much, which is obviously different for everyone. And maybe that's just more a reflection of my own procrastination abilities. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, and it's good to hear um, your reflections on that, particularly for people that, you know, maybe feel that doing a full-time PhD is prohibitive in terms of cost or career breaker for whatever other reason. Um, but you also, you have this double whammy of also studying at a distance from Queen's. How have you found that experience? I think it's actually been a, um, it's it's a, a kind of positive aspect of it because if I had to go up to Queen's regularly or if I had to factor in uh, regular time to get on campus, that would make this project very difficult. Um, now, the actual nature of the work is it's mostly online anyway, because you're reading journals, but you're now, uh, Queen's has excellent access um, to kind of most of the major journals. So I'm not kind of losing access to, um, to uh, content. And I have an excellent supervisor who, I mean, are, I think at the moment, like it's averaging about a, a Skype meeting or an on-site meeting once every like three to four weeks. And he's very good at, uh, at corresponding over email. So it's the case where um, if there's a question um, or there's a series of questions which, which like usually come up, I can get those dealt with very quickly. And then on the other side of it, um, I have to just, you know, block off time and say I have to read or um, I've just got an abstract in uh, for a second conference now, so I need to focus on writing, <laughs> writing the paper for it. Uh, and so that's just a matter of putting the head down, like getting it working, and then 
that's probably surfacing in you know, four to five weeks after there's a body of work done, get it checked and move on. So as long as your supervisor and you are, are able to work on that same basis, it'll go well. If there's conflict there or if you have to keep going back up on campus, then I can see how that can be a, a large blocker. Yeah, I completely agree. I um, often reflect on the importance of a good supervisor in the, not necessarily the success of a PhD. Many people can, you know, complete their PhDs in spite of their supervisor, but the experience and ease of the journey is so much influenced by that. And so I think that's always a really important thing to reflect on and not just seeking out a person that is, you know, well known in their field or whatever, but is actually a good person that will be good to work with. So I'm glad that you're having that experience. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, all things considered, yours is a positive one, despite what, you know, a uh, external person looking in would maybe think that these things are challenges, but you d- seem to be making them work in a way that makes it actually an easier process for you than some of the alternatives. So that's really nice to hear that kind of alternative perspective from the usual more traditional full-time on-campus type of journey. Um, so thank you very much for that. Is there anything else you would like to share about your research or your experience so far? No, it's it's been actually kind of very good. Um, and uh, in fairness to all the people in the School of Law, um, they've been excellent. Um, so any questions or problems um, are dealt with very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, I'm, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's all of the actual challenges now I have to get content written yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thoughts ironed out and, uh, you know, like take like what I want and just like put it through the actual rigor of a formal academic process. And that's in the process, uh, so far it's been great. Um, there's going to be bad days ahead. There has to be, um, but overall, uh, it's been excellent and yeah. I would highly recommend if a person is interested in a topic and they are passionate about it, don't let the fact that it's part-time or distance get in the way. That's lovely. Thank you so much for this incredibly interesting and positive conversation, Ian. It was a joy to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, So everyone, you have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville, working remotely from his own home. Um, Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's University Law School. Thank you to them. Thank you to Ian Nash for joining us today. Um, Please follow us on Twitter at QUBLawPod. You can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and access us on Spotify and other places that you get your podcasts. Please take a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. Thank you for listening. I am Rachel. This was Lawpod. Lawpod.